welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, everyone. I'm joined today by Dr. Yusuf Valtanen. Uh, Dr. Valtanen is an author and psychologist from Helsinki. He studied neuropsychology at Johns Hopkins, where he was a Fulbright scholar. He studied screenwriting in the United Kingdom, and he has also worked as a science reporter. We're here today to discuss some of Dr. Valtanen's academic work, including one of his most recent publications, Polypharmacy-Induced Cognitive Dysfunction and Discontinuation of Psychotropic Medication, a Neuropsychological Case Report, as well as his literary work, including his novel, They Know Not What They Do, which won the Finlandia Prize, Finland's highest literary honor. Dr. Valtanen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, just to get into it, firstly, I think listeners would love to hear a little more about your various interests. Uh, you are, as I've described, both a psychologist and a novelist. Uh, how did you get into each discipline, and how do you believe the two of them feed off each other? It's it's true. I've I've been leading this um, crazy double life for quite a while, and I, to be perfectly honest, I was never sure how how long I'd be able to pull it off. And it's, it hasn't always been quite easy. I mean, I would strongly recommend against you doing anything like this because having even one job that's incredibly demanding and monopolizes all your intellectual space, I mean, that would seem more than enough for anybody. But um, I guess I'm a little bit comforted by some of the examples you can find in, in the history of literature, like Chekhov, who famously was um, a medical doctor and also wrote tons of short stories that um, revolutionized the history of literature and, and also plays. And um, so um, I guess personally, I've found that there's something, there's something about um, science that's in incredibly interesting and satisfying and fascinating, I feel like there's also something lacking from, I don't know, in, from the perspective of, of human experience. I don't know if, it, if this is just my personal madness, but it, it always feels to me like that's just one part of the puzzle. And, and they kind of, I kind of feel like you need, um, you need them both to kind of understand who we are and what we're trying to do. And can you just talk to me a little bit about what drove the specific research interests that you've developed over your career? This case report that we published recently wasn't actually anything that I had intended to get into. It was the way I got into it was um, actually by accident. Um, SN was one of the last patients I saw when I was still working at the Helsinki City Health Center. Um, I worked there in the psychiatric outpatient services. My job was to conduct cognitive assessments of psychiatric patients. So they, they often had a psychiatric diagnosis, but they also had some other problem or there, there was a worry that something else might be going on, maybe a neurological disease or something like that. SN was just a case in, with which both Mira Karash, my, my colleague, and I and SN herself, we all felt like we felt it was important to kind of document in some way what had happened to her so that maybe other people could also get that information and hopefully learn something from it. Yeah, so uh, just building on that a little bit, uh, this case study that you published, I found very fascinating, just to give our readers a little bit of context. Uh, it's about a 41-year-old woman with a doctoral degree and a successful professional career who gradually became forgetful 
visually distractible and unable to function in her normal occupational and social roles after she added lithium in combination with other psychiatric drugs that she'd taken as prescribed for years. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about the findings and what you felt as though this case study demonstrated? SN came to us um, because she was worried that she had dementia or some form of progressive brain disease. Um, she felt like something had clearly changed and she wasn't able to do many of the things that she was used to doing and things that were had been trivially easy for her. And according to her own recollection, she had never missed a single day of work in her life before these problems began. And she was also, although she had seen therapists um, on several occasions during her life, she had her life had been pretty remarkably stable for her something like six years. So she, she hadn't really had any abnormal fluctuations in mood or anything that psychiatric side of, side of things that would have worried her terribly. But she was convinced that something about her cognitive functions had changed. And I also met with her partner who was also really worried and, and said that she's something about her has changed. And he was worried also that um, his wife was developing dementia or something. There were several several things that worried both of them. One was that she had started missing really important appointments at work, and she had started um, forgetting to pick up her kids from their hobbies and and that kind of a thing. And also, like really enjoyable meetings with friends, she just forgot to go. Something like this occasionally happens to all of us, and so sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to know what's abnormal and what's just you know normal. But um, in her case just the sheer frequency of things and the importance of the meetings that she was missing were already a little bit worrying. But also in combination with her other complaints, um, she was, for example, she had become unable to use her online banking system that she had been using for years. And it's something that's trivially easy to use for um, any neurologically healthy adult, let alone somebody with a PhD and you know, a really demanding job. So she noticed that she had trouble typing in the correct sequences. In fact, had had to give all her financial affairs to her partner to take care of because she wasn't able to do them anymore. Um, and then she had to take um, sick leave from work. So all of this sounded like something serious was probably going on. And so that was the reason why we did the cognitive testing to kind of um, see whether the test results would corroborate um, these worries that they had, and then hopefully to try to figure out what was going on and try to help her. And over the course of your, your treatment of this, this patient, she was repeatedly clinical. Well, this is, I guess, before you treated her, but she was uh, repeatedly clinically misinterpreted, not informed of the risks of the side effects of the drug she was taking, and didn't really know to associate her side effects with her medication. Uh, what do you feel that her experience with all of this uh, says about the state of the field of psychiatry? I think it's really revealing that it hadn't, it literally hadn't occurred to anybody that her taking four or five different psychiatric drugs simultaneously might have adverse effects on the brain and, and on her cognition. Um, before starting lithium, she hadn't been warned that something like this could occur. And that would have been, of course, incredibly important so that she could have um, noticed it earlier and, and then, um, have her medication reduced. One of the tricky things, of course, is that it's not clear how much we should worry about things like complaints with memory in every individual case, because 
Um, as we know, some of that happens to all of us. And there's um, many authors in the medical literature have argued that the memory problems and the cognitive blurring that, that people often experience when, when they're taking lithium, many authors have argued that those are not really things we should worry about, that, you know, the, the benefits of the medication are so important and, um, and the side effects are relatively mild. In her case, of course, that was not true at all. But we also don't know if that was just lithium or if it was lithium in combination with some or all of the other drugs that she was taking. But we do know that polypharmacy in general is associated with a higher risk of iatrogenic damage, both neurological and otherwise. And so it, it seems a little puzzling to me as a cognitive psychologist that we aren't, I guess that we aren't more cautious about these kinds of effects. If we think about the substantial proportion of people now who are taking psychiatric drugs, often several of them over the long term, and you know that in combination with the lack of high quality research evidence about what those drugs might do to the brain over the long term, um, that that's, that does seem worrying to me. And could you talk to me a little bit more about your perception of the risks of polypharmacy? I, I heard you getting into it a little bit, but I'd love to hear you uh, expand on that. First of all, we we don't really have as much research evidence on um, even on the individual psychiatric drugs that many people are taking now. Um, most of the studies that most of the research evidence that we have is, of course, coming from studies that have been conducted over the short term only and looking at their long-term effects is much trickier and much more expensive and, and harder to do. In the case of lithium, for example, you can actually find experimental studies looking at lithium's effects on cognitive processes on healthy human participants, just volunteers who have volunteered to, to um, take the drug for a while. And then when the drug is discontinued, we can see how the cognitive functions recover. But you, it would be ethically incredibly problematic to do that over, you know, something like five years with a with a really large group of participants. So we don't really have all that evidence, or we have less of it than you'd hope. And of course, once you um, factor in com different combinations of several different drugs, of course, the situation becomes even more complicated. So I hope we'd have more and better quality evidence on all of that, but we unfortunately don't. And do you hope or anticipate that this work will cause a larger body of research into polypharmacy to follow? I don't think an individual case report will really, I mean, they're, they're often the least significant um, category of medical research you can conduct. So, you know, probably not. But in our case, when, when we were looking at the medical literature, when we were trying to figure out together with SN what might be causing her problems, some of the published case reports turned out to be really important for us because we noticed that there were other people who also had developed cognitive problems, sometimes very severe ones, during long-term administration of lithium. And we also, we also noticed that there were several cases that had been published already earlier where um, the patients had been misdiagnosed and treated as dementia patients. And then, you know, in some of those cases, the... Lithium was, was discontinued for some other reason, and 
the patient improved and only then the treating team realized it was probably what had been causing the problem all along. But I think there is a kind of um, um, a general interest towards de-prescribing and kind of thinking about whether in some cases it might be um, helpful to just think about reducing the number of drugs um, the population is using in general. So hopefully that trend will continue to be um, investigated further. And as you bring up, this is, of course, a case study with an N of one, which comes with certain limitations, as you've discussed already. Uh, so why did you feel it was important to publish this particular piece, even with those limitations in mind? For me, one of the one of the really kind of um, impactful things about SN's case, of course, I mean, I followed her really closely for a long time. And so, you know, she... Um, her case was important to me personally, but also I think, I mean, one of the really impactful things about her case is that none of the problems that she had had in her life, at least in retrospect, none of them seemed that severe. Like, you know, she had never experienced any psychiatric symptoms that would have been really extreme or kind of where you kind of go, aha. I understand now why she was prescribed all those drugs and, you know, they must have wanted to do something to, you know, to alleviate the pain in some way. She's a person who had always done incredibly well in her life. She had um, received the highest grades in school and she had performed really well in, in, a, co in a really demanding job. And, you know, all, all she really had wanted was to talk to a therapist about her life and about her future plans and about her marriage and, and stuff like that. Kind of everyday life seeming things. And so if a person like this enters the mental health system and becomes medicated to the point of disability and becomes unable to function uh, both socially and professionally, that seems really alarming to me. It, it just seems to me like that's one of the really um, clear examples of how the system, there, there must be some kinds of blind spots in the system for it to go this badly wrong in a case like this. Um, and that, I mean, I should also mention that her cognitive deficits were not um, incredibly extreme. I mean, if you look at the medical literature, there are, there are people who have, um, have had much, much worse cognitive deficits. And, and so, you know, her story is also has a, has a fairly happy ending, um, so to speak. But still, I mean, you can, you can ask what the system was trying to do with her and why, why it went so badly wrong. And transitioning out of this particular piece a little bit, um, what sorts of challenges do you believe there are both from your personal experience uh, and from observation of the field at large in doing research on the negative impact of certain psychiatric drugs? Um, that's a really, really good and important question and also a fairly broad one. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it does seem like we have been telling ourselves culturally telling ourselves a story about um, scientific breakthroughs and these revolutionary treatments that we now have in psychiatry and about how neuroscience is, is changing the field and how we've become um, much, much closer to understanding how the brain works and, you know, the kinds of um, aberrations in, in, in brain processes that might help explain what mental illness is and so forth. I wonder if 
just the fact that this is the story that we have been telling us ourselves and each other as a culture. Um, I wonder if this is a story that kind of um, simultaneously prevents us from asking some of these important questions. So if that's the story you're telling yourself, you know, about really incredibly precise, very targeted interventions um, in the brain, it's kind of hard to simultaneously start asking what we actually know about the long-term effects of these drugs and how, how they actually affect the brain. And so maybe one of the things I'd be, I'm hoping for it would be a kind of a more um, scientifically grounded or more realistic cultural appreciation of what we do know about the brain and what we do know about these drugs and kind of a, I guess, a more balanced take on things in general. And what is your perception generally uh, on how the media covers psychiatry, both, uh, you know, you can probably speak to both Finnish and American media coverage and whether there's any difference there as well? I think there probably is a, is a big difference in that the U.S. being such a large country, it's, it, it would be impossible to kind of sustain um, one narrative that would be shared among all um, among everybody and the whole country. So there's clearly a lot more um, variance and, and different kinds of media outlets that um, can sometimes find very different um, um, pieces of information. And of course, Madden America is one of those media outlets that kind of has found an angle that nobody else is really doing in that way and, and um, is trying to highlight some of the research evidence that otherwise may go missing or um, unnoticed. And I guess one of the, one of the things about living in a really tiny country like Finland with only like five or six million people, you don't get that variety of different media outlets or even the variety of different opinions and, and different research approaches. You often end up with a handful of experts in any given field whose voices are often heard um, very well. And the Swedes actually even have a word for it, um, and it translates to something like the opinion corridor. And you, there, there's kind of like a, a range of opinions on most things, a range of opinions that are socially acceptable or socially allowed. And I think any big country like the U.S. is probably more accepting of, of different differences of opinion. I'm going to transition to discussing your book, which talks about some of this stuff anyways. Um, so first things, can you just kind of describe why you wrote They Know Not What They Do? What, what was so important that needed to be told in, in that novel form? That's a fantastic question. And I, I, I wish I had an answer to that question. <laughs> the, the nature of the process is somewhat different. Um, I think if I had asked myself that question, I probably would never have started writing it at all. The process was more along the lines of, um, let's just see where this goes. Let's, let's see what happens if I try doing this. Um, but in hindsight, I think one of the motivations for starting to write the stuff that I began writing, um, which ended up being the first part of the novel, I, I think I was probably personally trying to um, understand some of my own experiences after coming back from the U.S., where I had done some of my dissertation work, and it was kind of a textbook case of um, reverse culture shock. And people had warned me about that 
um, in advance, and I kind of knew about it, but I was still <laughs> I was still surprised at what happened to me. So once you spend a longer period of time abroad, you when you return, you kind of do see your own country differently from before, and it's a cliche, but it is shocking. And so I think that experience kind of motivated me into trying to imagine what that country would like would look like through the eyes of somebody else who came from from the U.S. and had a um, a very different background. The book, I feel, has a lot of interesting themes, and I don't think we're going to be able to pull all of them out right now. Um, but one of the interesting themes that you do bring up right now is that there is sort of this difference between American and Finnish cultures, whether that's real or perceived difference. And that's certainly a struggle for uh, several of the protagonists. So as as someone with a foot in each world, what what can you tell me about that that difference, whether it's real, perceived? Any thoughts you have on that? Well, first of all, I think the the probably the real differences were more real um, several decades ago. So the beginning of the book is set in the early or mid '90s, um, during which Finland had was facing a historically bad economic depression, and so that's that's part of the social context into which my American protagonist Joe um, enters into. And since then, of course, the world has globalized and become much more connected through the internet. And and you know, young people growing up um, would probably learn really good English now, even if they didn't go to school in Finland, because they're so they're following YouTube and they're you know they're on the internet all the time. And so things in many ways have changed. But I also think. That just the sheer number of people and the diversity of um, t- people with different cultural and ethnic and religious backgrounds and just the diversity of opinions. And that alone, I think, makes the U.S. a really special place. Still, um, w- when you compare it to a tiny European country like Finland, and Finland actually is also, because Finland is a little bit more isolated um, from the other Nordic countries than the others are, because Finnish the Finnish language is, is not related to any of the other Nordic languages at all. Um, and I think that also keeps us a little bit separate from the other Nordic countries. And I think you touched on this a little bit, but another th- another theme in the book is this obsession sort of bordering on addiction to technology. Um, and at one point, a character... I'm trying not to spoil anything here, so I'm going to be vague, but uh, a character is trying to stop using this pretty spectacular technological device, and he bemoans, sort of, I'll, I'll read a passage directly that I found interesting. It says, he has to generate every thought and impression by himself from beginning to end. How onerous. And worst of all, not a single thought seems to lead anywhere unless he puts active effort into it. No menus open, nothing reacts to his wishes, nor does concentrating on any object bring it to life in a series of increasingly specific choices. So uh, that's a loaded passage, but I'm wondering if you could speak a little more on the social commentary that underlies it. Yeah, the, the, the novel is obviously really interested in our um, technologically driven culture and why we're so obsessed with these devices that we're now using um, all the time. And I guess one of the questions the novel is trying to kind of ask is, is whether this increasingly rapid access to all these enormous amounts of information, whether 
whether that really helps us to understand each other better or not. And I think one of the things um, in the passage that you just read is related to how how much wor- how much mental work it um, requires if you do something like try to create a world of your own in your writing or you know produce something in your research that hasn't existed before and it it requires an enormous um, amount of mental energy whereas these devices that we're using i mean they're designed to satisfy us and we we become these passive passengers who enjoy the ride but once you take the device away you're like am i really supposed to do all this thinking by myself like do i have to imagine things like that's so much work and i think something interesting that you highlight about this rapid technological advancement is that not only is there danger but there's also a lot of potential I mean, some some research that I just read was the potential uses of machine learning, including uh, like predicting the risk of suicide and psychosis to me, which is very interesting and exciting, but also very, very scary research. Um, so I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on this duality. I completely agree with you. There's a duality that is um, that promises a lot and could potentially be incredibly helpful and useful, but it's also scary. And I think one of the reasons why it's scary is that we don't seem to really, I don't know if this would even be possible, but we, at least in practice, we don't really seem to first have a very thorough social debate over, you know, here's here's this new device or this new technology that somebody invented. Let's talk about what the pros and cons are and, and let's try to decide together whether we should start using it or not, or what the, you know, what the rules and regulations or checks and balances should be. We just start using them. I mean, they're, they're on the market and then, you know, you hear that somebody has bought it and, you know, legislation is far behind and then, you know, only um, gradually do we start to um, discover what the potential dangers and problems are. And maybe that's one of the reasons why I'm sometimes a little bit skeptical about, or or maybe I would just prefer um, a little bit of a slower pace in which we'd have more time to kind of discuss what's going on and how, how the world is changing and what we think is actually in our best interests uh, um, as, a, as a society and as human beings. Yeah, and I think this is sort of a related theme, but another theme that I was pulling out from your book is about research ethics and how for some folks the ethics of research can become blurred when they perceive that the end result justifies the means of getting that result. And so I'm curious as to whether that interest is a theme from your own work and how you see those themes popping up in the work around you. I think it is a really interesting theme. I never thought about writing a novel that would address that theme per se or do it in a direct way. But what I had noticed was that um, in a lot of novels, if and and especially films, I guess, um, if if you see researchers or scientists, they're often depicted in this incredibly idealized way, in which they're not, you know, they're sometimes even just you know half human, and they're kind of above all like the pity um, considerations that you and I might have in our everyday lives, and and I guess that was something that I kind of wanted to write against. And it seems to me that research doing, doing research is kind of a, 
in, in some ways, kind of a, like a job like any other job. And you, you learn to do what your mentors do and what your peers do. And you kind of see who becomes successful and what they did to become successful. And, and it's in a lot of cases, I think research ethics is not something that people kind of, you know, ponder over every day and kind of try to make these idealized um, decisions in the abstract. It's more kind of like, this is how we typically do it. Then you send the form to the IRB and, you know, it, it becomes, it's, it's your job. And so part of it is just that you can't afford to start thinking really deep philosophical questions every day about your day job. You just can't afford to do that. And so um, that obviously creates the possibility that if things start gradually going wrong, like in as a system that, you know, people start doing something that becomes normal, but is actually ethically problematic. You can find yourself in a situation where, um, where the, where there's a systemic problem and nobody really notices it. That reminds me of sort of this subplot that's developing in the book where Joe is waging war against the the publishing company. I can't remember the name of, of the, the conglomerate in there, but you know, he's just kind of constantly waging this battle against essentially the corporatization of, of scientific literature. And all the while, you know, people are losing their jobs and he's paying half attention in these meetings. And so he's trying to do what he perceives as the good and the, the moral and the just thing. But uh, there's a lot more going on there. So is that sort of a, in your mind, a warning on, on what is to come or, or where did that idea come from? It's a very real concern. I mean, it's some of the some of the academic publishers are um, their subscription fees are clearly not sustainable, and sometimes, um, I mean, people will end up boycotting some of these um, publishers just because they find that their um, their demands are unreasonable. But I guess in that novel, and for me um, more generally, it's one of those things where I think it's easy to now living in this society today, it just feels like there are all these different societal problems that are kind of just attacking you from all sides, you know, and, and there are different sizes and there are, some of them are more national and some of them are gl- more global and some of them seem more devastating than others, but there are all these systemic problems. And it kind of seems like if you wanted to be a really ethical, good per- person, you'd have to use a lot of your a lot of the time that you spend awake, you'd spend battling all these different battles. Um, and, you know, that's one of them for Joe, but you could easily come up with 10 others that would feel equally important. Yeah, that's that's sort of an exhausting battle that he, he faces throughout the book. And I, I kind of felt that parallel to my own life. So I thought that was a very interesting thing of, of you to bring up. Um, and the last sort of book-related question I have is actually not... My own writing, I was, I was reading uh, Anna Patterson's review of your book. I'm not sure if you've read it, um, but she said towards the end of it that, uh, and I'm quoting here, the darkness of the satire is very much Valtanen's own, and it grows pitch black towards the end when it becomes clear that we are ready as ever to kill those who might save us. I found that to be a very profound statement, but I was curious as to whether you agreed with that conceptualization of your work. I like that conceptualization. I'm I'm not sure if it was one that, um, if it was my interpretation of the work. I mean, I, I I clearly see why she says that, and I think it's consistent with the work. But I guess for me personally, what was always most important about 
about the relationship between the father and the son was whether they would be able to find common ground, whether they'd be able to find each other and have a, um, a reasonable adult conversation together um, and whether they would be able to um, understand each other even a little bit. And that to me felt more important than the, um, the sequence of events that then unfolds um, during that, during the ending. And I, I can feel you're, you're carefuler, careful around spoilers as well. Um, <laughs> but last question about the book is just, if you, you know, say someone puts down your book, finishes reading it, what's the one lesson or the one thought that you want to be tumbling around their brains when they're done reading it? That's obviously something for the reader. I, I would hate to be, I mean, um, it's kind of tempting to imagine that I'd be the person who'd be able to. I'm hoping to tempt you here. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm the kind of an author who'd rather hear from the reader what it was for them. What, what was it for you? What, what was tumbling around your brain after? Oh, well, I mean, I've shared several of those things already, I think, but the, the most interesting one for me was the the sort of duality of the the difference between uh, the potential and the, and the danger of technological advancement. I felt that you could feel it kind of coming in waves. You know, you could see it happening in Joe versus what was happening in his older colleagues versus what was happening in his children. And it felt really to me like a red flag being thrown into the air of, of you know, we're, we're running into this darkness and we don't necessarily, we can't see very far ahead. So maybe let's pump the pump the brakes a little bit. And so I, I was thinking a lot about that because I have been in the past someone who has been really interested in these sort of technologies that I worked in a, a suicide prevention lab for a couple of years prior to coming to grad school. And we were very interested in using technology to predict suicide. And I, I got sort of really deep into that headspace. Uh, but now I'm taking some steps back and sort of realizing both the danger and, and the excitement and the possibility of these sorts of technological inventions. So that was one of the ones for me. I could talk to you for an hour about, <laughs> about the other ones, but that was the biggest takeaway for me, I think. What I think is beautiful about fiction is that different, that everybody takes slightly different things away from them. And, you know, if, if you read, if you read, um, a, a, a whole novel, um, you'll, some of your thoughts will be the same as, uh, with another reader, but some of them will be completely different. And, um, and for me, that's, that's part of the beauty of it. I think that runs, that's a very interesting parallel to run along your, your more academic work, um, which is why I was so interested to talk to you about all this, but, um, I do just have one more question for you today, which is just thinking about your your next steps, both in terms of your academic and your literary pursuits. Uh, as we sit here today, what do you what do you feel passionate about? What do you feel as important to investigate from your perspective? Well, one of the things that I've been really excited about recently um, is something that we've been talking about with Brad Lewis, who is at NYU, and he does narrative psychiatry and. Brad is a really f fascinating guy, and we've—I met him when I was doing a postdoc at NYU. Um, I had known about his work, and I had read his book. It's titled *Narrative Psychiatry*, which I would highly recommend. And I had just decided that once I get to New York, I'll just email him and ask him if he has time to meet me. And he did, and, and he was really friendly um, and very generous with his time. And I actually ended up auditing a couple of his classes, and we talked about a lot of stuff. And one of the things we ended up talking about was 
functional neuroimaging studies of depression and a particular short story that Chekhov wrote in the 1880s. And, and we kind of started thinking about what Chekhov would say about the functional neuroimaging of, of depression. And we're tentatively working on a project in which we're, that's exactly what we're, we're kind of trying to figure out. Or we're using Chekhov's short story to kind of think with it about what it means um, to think about something like depression in biological terms or more versus more holistic terms. And I think the kind of bringing the arts into this conversation feels useful to me for some reason. I don't know if anybody else will pay any attention to it, but um, we're, it seems like Brad and I are both really fascinated about this. Well, that seems like a super fascinating topic. I'm curious as to what, how does one even begin that work? What, what does the day-to-day of that work look like? <laughs> a lot of it involved Brad and I talking over lunch or coffee um, about Chakov and about depression and about neuroscience. Um, but um, I, I guess one way to start would be to read that story. It's, t- it's titled A Nervous Breakdown, and it's about um, a young man, a law student named, named Vasiliev, who experiences something that gets to be called a nervous breakdown. And he, his friends take him to see a psychiatrist. And it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic story. I'd highly recommend it. I'll add that to my list too. Um, and I will, <laughs> I will keep my eyes out for uh, everything that you will have to come. Um, I just want to thank you again for your time and chatting with me today. I'm, I'm very appreciative of the work you do and, and for taking the time out of your day to talk. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for your generosity. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.